Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Stephen Roach joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. He's up there with Tom. He's a senior fellow at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University, former chairman of Morgan Stanley uh, Asia. And uh, Steve, I suppose we should begin here by talking about the uh, the People's Congress, which, as I said, just uh, concluded or is concluding uh, in Beijing. What did you hear over the course of this uh, last week, uh, if you lent an ear to the full three and a half hours of President Xi's uh, speech? What did you glean from that? What did you glean from uh, the uh, the personnel announcements that we learned about throughout the week? Well, David, there's a lot of discussion um, about um, the the elevation of the role of Xi Jinping, who the next uh, leader is going to be, who the composition of the uh, the top seven uh, leaders in China are going to be. I, you know, I, I don't want to minimize any of that, but but to me, the the most significant um, uh, shift in in the um, Party Congress really came from a, a reworking and an updating of the ideological framework that underpins the entire policy debate in China. Uh, and it's, it seems a bit obscure to Western observers, but I think this was a big deal. Uh, you know, this is a, a group that is steeped in, um, you know, uh, sort of the, the Chinese version of um, Marxism and the, the principal uh, sort of analytical tenet of Marxism is what they call the principal contradiction. They pose a problem, uh, and then they tell you if the basically the the inference is if the problem is not resolved, then mm. the system will uh, 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 decay and um, uh, revolution will occur. They have operated with the same principal contradiction since 1981. It was a, a one that reflected China's status as a developing poor nation. And in this 19th People's Congress, they changed the principal contradiction uh, to focus on uh, the unbalanced and inadequate development of China, implying that the focus uh, for the foreseeable future is to rebalance and to make uh, the system more adequate in providing the needs uh, for the people. So they've basically enshrined this whole uh, policy approach toward the structural rebalancing of their economy is part of the ideology that drives uh, the policy uh, uh, debate and the role that the party and its policymakers play in shaping that. And that may seem obscure and a little bit, you know, um, uh, uh, obtuse, but uh, they are a strategy-driven system, and they've updated the strategy dramatically in this 19th uh, Party Congress, along with uh, some of the personnel and leadership changes that you all are focusing on in the media. Stephen Roach, you mentioned the, 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 the role of the party, and, and I wonder how much that's changed here and what we've learned about the role of the party uh, going forward. I'm struck by the, uh, the long horizon that President Xi talked about, getting to center stage over the course of many decades. Uh, what role is the party going to play in doing that? Have we seen a sort of reaffirmation of, of its importance? Well, Xi Jinping made it clear from day one when he took over literally five years ago that uh, this was um, the moment of truth for the the party. In his view, uh, the party had become unconnected with its primary mission of uh, serving the 
the role uh, in, in its role is, is the foundation of the People's Republic of China. And so addressing party discipline through the anti-corruption uh, campaign, party governance, which has been a big focus of uh, Xi Jinping, uh, there's a clear focus here in uh, re-energizing the party as being uh, the anchor of the uh, People's Republic of China for the foreseeable future. And this um, uh, political report that was delivered last week um, by Xi Jinping uh, to open the 19th Party Congress uh, stretches uh, uh, the party's horizon uh, as uh, the shaper of, of policies and strategies for the foreseeable future. And as I said, uh, by uh, re- recasting uh, the so-called principal contradiction, which lies at the heart mm. of um, party focus, uh, there's been a, a big upgrading uh, of the role that the party plays in, in designing strategy. What does this all mean for uh, the, the liberalization efforts we've heard talked about uh, and, and uh, that some have hoped for? Uh, we've seen the, the uptick in capital controls, for instance. When it comes to economic policy, are we to expect status quo out of this, Steve Roach, or, or, or uh, are there going to be changes to come? Perhaps not outlined here at this, this event over the last week, but um, you know, now that this is out of the way, is it going to lead the way to some, some, some more economic changes? Well, I, look, I think um, the, the one thing that's very clear, uh, at least to me, in, in the work I've done in China over the last 10 to 15 years is that their emphasis on stability, whether it's uh, political stability, economic stability, social stability, or financial stability, uh, is uh, f- a far more important to them than it is to us. I mean, you know, we roll the dice on stability, and we figure we've got the tools to clean up the mess uh, uh, after um, uh, periods of instability. China has, has lived the mess uh, for a long part of its history and is determined uh, never to go back to that. So when there are uh, uh, threats to stability uh, that require capital controls, require the, requiring them to defer the liberalization of, of the renminbi or even the marketization of the economy, they will, they will put those initiatives on hold. I still think they're committed to a, uh, a system that will eventually uh, be more... Um, uh, market determined in terms of guiding resource allocation than they have now, but it's um, uh, not not a uh, a process that um, uh, they're focused on uh, accelerating, irrespective of some of the risks uh, that arise from time to time with respect to uh, stability. Uh, Tom, uh, I hear some echoing there of what uh, Diana Chuleva told us yesterday, yeah. uh, echoing some similar themes there. You know, Stephen Roach, one of the great acclaims of your work at Morgan Stanley when you always said the hard landing wouldn't occur. What did the hard landing people get wrong? Mm-hmm. The hard landing in China? Yeah. No, uh, in Tanzania. Well, of course yeah. China. Come on. <laughs> Next block. I, I think, you know, look, the, the, um, the, the hard landing view is always sort of taking the problems as they uh, evolved in the West and saying, you know, we know what can go wrong. Look at what happened to us, and China's got some characteristics that are similar to ours, and ergo, uh, let's, let's make the same call with respect to China. China's a different system with different characteristics, and uh, you can't presume that uh, the similarities of um, 
one economy uh, are, are are going to necessarily mm. follow the same trajectory of of another. And I think it's yeah. the Western view of China that has really missed the mark. Is President Xi tilting closer to the Chinese we knew of Mao and Shaolin or is it ever farther away from our collective memory of our Ute? No, I look. Uh, he. He he clearly uh, was anointed by the mm-hmm. the uh, senior members of of, of the party uh, to, so a, was to, to a level that uh, has has not been granted to any leader since Mao. But does that mean he's the new Mao? Uh, yeah. not at all. Okay. Uh, he's much more yeah. modern and up to date, uh, and focused on very different things yeah. than Mao Zedong was. We're focused with Stephen Roach on China, and of course. Uh, focused as well on the Fed Derby. He is one good to speak of of that, particularly with Stephen Roach's uh, cogent essays over the last decade on not inflation dynamics and not job dynamics, but asset dynamics. And that has something to do with the next Fed chairman and some would even say the next Fed vice chairman as well. Good morning, everyone. Tom Keen, Michael McKeon for David Gura here in New York, in Washington as well. Right now, a conversation with the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross. Here is David Weston. President Trump has proclaimed this National Minority Enterprise Development Week, and Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross will be joining the President today at the White House at an award ceremony. With our colleagues from radio, we now welcome Secretary Ross coming to Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio live from our Washington Bureau. Welcome back to the program, Mr. Secretary. Good to have you. Thank you. It's good to be on. So this this week, devoted to National uh, Minority Enterprise Development, has been around for some time. This is not the first time you had the week. What's different this year from last year? Why is this different under a Trump administration? Well, I think it's different for several reasons. First of all, the Trump administration is much more business-oriented in general than had been the previous administration. Second, many of the moves that are being made particularly in the tax area, will directly benefit smaller companies. Um, For example, most of those are now LLCs or limited partnerships or some other form of pass-through income vehicle. The Trump administration is proposing to cut the tax rate there from a peak of the individual rate of 39.6%, down to 25%. Second, these are young companies growing, have to make capital expenditures. So the ability to write off capital expenditures immediately is going to be a very powerful boost to their cash flow. The third thing is that by giving awards to the folks that we will be doing today, we're emphasizing some of these spectacular successes that individual minority entrepreneurs have been able to achieve. And some of them are quite remarkable. But overall, these tend to be relatively small businesses. There are 946,246 minority enterprises in the U.S. that have paid employees. Those entities 
have a, a total of about 8 million employees and 1.1 trillion of revenues. So there's plenty of room for them to grow. And part of the role of the MBDA is to help facilitate that growth. It cooperates with the Small Business Association. And then in terms of the exports, it cooperates with another part of commerce, the Foreign Commercial Services. And those have counterparts in 100 some odd cities and in 60 embassies overseas. So it's a very big comprehensive package to try to help minority enterprises. So you refer, Mr. Secretary, to some of the ways in which the tax reform plan that's been suggested might help minority enterprises. One of the issues, I think, in Washington today is what parts of the overall outline are sure to survive and which ones won't? The so-called red lines. The two things we've heard most specifically are middle class tax cuts and taking the corporate rate down to 20 percent. What you referred to, for example, is the pass-through issue. Is that something that really the White House will press for and insist upon, will not compromise on? Well, it certainly is part of the basic program, and it has been for quite some little while. Um, it's, it's an important element because of its impact on small business. And small business is also impacted by another reform that the president intends to put in, and that's the repeal of the death tax. It's bad enough to have to die. You shouldn't be fined for doing so. And that's a serious problem for small businesses, family businesses, particularly farms, which tend to be relatively illiquid and therefore have to be sold often just to pay the tax. So there is a perception that, as you call the death tax, the estate tax, really benefits the very, very wealthy in the country. Do you disagree with that? Well, the reason that it benefits people over a certain size is that everybody under that size has already been exempted. So the question is, is there any fairness to having just one portion of the population pay a death tax on values that largely have already been taxed? Most private businesses start out with very little capital. So by the time the entrepreneur dies, what's been built up is retained earnings on which tax has been paid. And therefore, it's a little unfair to tax that twice. It may be unfair or not, but is it possible to square the, the passion to get rid of the estate tax, on the one hand, with the press for middle class tax cuts? It doesn't sound like the estate tax has much to do with the middle class. Well, they're separate issues, but you could also argue, and we do argue, that reducing the corporate taxes, both the normal C corporation rate and the rate for the flow-throughs, that also benefits the middle class. Because when you think about the components of uh, any business's costs, taxes one component, wages are another component, and materials and equipment are another final component. So to the degree that you have reduced the cost of one, it's very logical to think that there would be room to improve the amount allocated to some of the others, particularly wages. 
Mr. Secretary, thus far what we hear from the administration as well as from Capitol Hill are the wonderful tax cuts everybody's going to get. There's not as much talk yet, at least, about how that's going to be paid for. As Secretary of Commerce, as really sort of the quarterback of the economic team for the White House, uh, how concerned are you about some of the things we may have to do, such as cutting back on interest rate, business interest rate deductions, such as cutting back on the favorable tax treatment given to 401k? Could that have an adverse effect on the economy? Well, the president has announced that he intends to do away with a lot of the special gimmicks that have um, resulted in very low taxes for very high-income bracket people. For example, there's the discussion about not giving a deduction for state and local income taxes. 80% of the benefits of that go to 20% of the population. So that's one that's very, very oriented toward the upper brackets. And that's an example of what the president is doing to reduce the discrepancies. Wilbris, Jonathan here. Always great to catch up with you. Senator Bob Corker is doing the rounds on um, the U.S. networks today, and he said the following, that President Trump leaving tax overhaul to Congress would be the best way for us to have success. What do you say back to that, Wilbur? Well, the Congress is being asked to draft the details of the programs. What the president put forward is a framework. It's a conceptual framework. It's his objectives. But there are lots and lots of details to be ironed out, and that very appropriately is the work of Congress, because those committees have to do all the little semicolons, all the little commas, all the little clauses, because that, at the end of the day, is what makes or breaks the tax code. The Constitution, of course, ultimately gives it up to Congress to decide these things and propose them for the Senate to sign. In that sense, Senator Corker must be right. On the other hand, have you ever seen major legislation pass the Congress without firm and strong and persuasive leadership from the White House? Don't we need that leadership? Are we getting that in terms of this is what's important, this is what we'll give up on? Well, the affordable, the so-called Affordable Care Act under the Obama administration certainly had relatively little detailed guidance from the White House. It was basically done in the Congress, and that's the biggest piece of legislation from that administration. So what is the next step? What is the timetable, do you think, Wilbur? Well, we're hopeful uh, to have this voted in by the end of this calendar year. And the uh, budget resolutions that have been going through are a precursor to that, because in order to get the tax program through, we will need to avail ourselves of reconciliation. Reconciliation means that you basically only need 51 votes. And given the very partisan nature of Congress right now, anything that needs 60 votes is going to be very, very suspect. So the budget resolution and its provision that there can be a deficit up to a trillion five over the 10-year CBO yeah. measuring period right is a very important start. Well, but just as a final question for you, the race for the Fed chair is heating up, and I've just wondered whether you've spoken to the president about who you think would make the best Fed chair for this country. There have been discussions with a lot of us, and I'm not going to comment publicly on it until the president makes his determination. But he's asked for a wide variety of people to give him their opinions and their rationales.
Wilbur, it's always tough to pin you down and get an answer, but I I will put you on the spot. The front runners at the moment seem to be John Taylor and and Jay Powell. Out of the two of them, would you be satisfied (laughs) with either, and do you have a preference? Well, as I said, I don't think I'm going to be discussing publicly the choices the president might make. It's a very important decision. He's taking it very, very seriously. He's doing very considerable vetting. I'm sure he'll come up with a well-founded decision. Wilbur Ross, U.S. Commerce Secretary. Thank you very much, Wilbur, for being with us today. Great to have you back. Thank you. Been good to be on again. We adore bringing you the smartest people we can find on different topics. On the victory lap known as T-Mobile and the path forward for Mr. Legere, uh, Craig Moffat joins us from Moffat Nathanson. Craig, I have added to my list of things I've gotten wrong in my career, Mr. Legere. He was kind enough to retweet me the other day. I saw a clown in a pink T-shirt. I said, you got to be kidding me. That was a 20, and I don't know where the stock is now, 70 or 60, whatever it is. I got, along with a lot of other people, Mr. Legere wrong. Why was he so underestimated when he changed the phone business with a pink T-shirt? Hey, good morning, Tom. Um, you know, look, T-Mobile has done a lot of things right, and it's, but, but it's an interesting history, right? Remember that um, when AT&T tried to buy T-Mobile in 2011, T-Mobile was in a lot of trouble. They, they were, their network was struggling, yep. they didn't have enough capacity, and they didn't yep. have enough money. When that deal broke up, they, they got a big check from AT&T as a breakup fee, and they got a bunch of Spectrum as a breakup fee. And that got them started. They already had low prices. It got them started to to improve the network. And then they merged with Metro PCS, a reseller. It gave them a bunch more spectrum. And right around that same time, they got the iPhone. Now, certainly John deserves a lot of credit for, for navigating those waters so right. skillfully. Um, but but in, in a lot of ways, in retrospect, the setup was already there for T-Mobile to be successful. And, and one of the reasons that history is so interesting is because if Sprint and T-Mobile do announce that they're going to try to merge, they're going to claim they can't succeed as independent companies. And the Department of Justice is going to point to precisely right. that history for T-Mobile and say, I don't know, it works pretty well for is, them. Yeah. And, and you know, in, in some ways, T-Mobile's own success undercuts their ability yeah. to, to sell this merger. Why do they want to merge now? I mean, what is in it for Mr. Legere since he seems to be succeeding on his own? Well, he would certainly emerge as the CEO of the larger company. And um, let's be honest, in America, size, um, size has a pretty strong correlation with CEO compensation and, um, and, and prestige and a lot of other reasons. Um, but more importantly, I think they, they, these companies both genuinely believe that the table stakes to be truly competitive um, keep rising, uh, that, that as we go into this next phase of so-called 5G wireless, there's going to be a tremendous amount of capital investment required, and, and that means a tremendous amount of scale required. Um, 
And it probably doesn't make sense for us to, as a country, to think about four disparate networks trying to solve the the problem of 5G wireless. And so something's got to change. And I think both Sprint and T-Mobile are, are looking at a standalone future and saying it's going to be really tough to make this work um, as a company that is, if, if we are independently each half the size of Verizon and AT&T. Can they do it? What do you think the Justice Department, I mean, you, you've outlined a possible objection, but what do you think the Justice Department ultimately says? I, you know, I don't know. It's it's really a coin flip. I think under the Democrats, you would have said a, a merger has no chance. The Democrats were pretty clear in saying we want four, not three. And I mentioned a moment ago that the success that, that T-Mobile has had as a standalone company it, it by itself undermines the, the proposition that you need to be larger in order to compete. I think a lot comes down to how the, the Department of Justice measures consumer welfare. Um, if, if the, by the traditional measure, which is our price is going to be higher or lower for consumers, um, right. the deal probably doesn't succeed and would likely be rejected. If the DOJ expands the definition to say, no, a lot also depends on how successfully these companies can invest in their network, and so what facilities can they provide to consumers, um, then the right. deal has a better shot. And I'm not sure. Craig, in, in your research notes at Sanford Bernstein and with Moffat Nathanson, Craig Moffat, uh, I, I look at the response of a triopoly, an oligopoly, a duopoly, all the popolies we talk about. Where is the Verizon AT&T response to the guy with the pink T-shirt? I don't see it. Is it there? Oh, sure. It's there. And it's there in, in, in a number of ways. So we just talked about two of the definitions of, of competitive response and therefore consumer welfare, which are lower prices and capital investment. And both of those things have happened in spades from Verizon and AT&T. Look, in the, in the time since T-Mobile got the iPhone and really started with its aggressive so-called uncarrier moves, which are the, the, the series of competitive moves that they've made since really 2013, um, the amount of usage per handset in the United States has grown by something like a 70% compound annual growth rate. So it's up, call it 16 times or something like that in seven years. Um, the revenue per device against that 16 or 17 times increase in, in, in throughput has gone down by about 5 or 6%. So the, the price that Americans are paying per gigabyte of data has dropped by some 90% or so. Um, 90, in fact, it's been dropped by about 95% or so. That's the T-Mobile effect, right? Verizon and AT&T yeah. have had to respond to the the aggressive moves that T-Mobile has made um, in order to keep the customers they've already got. And, and Verizon has had probably a little more success than AT&T at doing that um, in that their, their yeah. wireless metrics have been a little bit better than AT&T's, but both companies have struggled. Yeah. And, and partly because of T-Mobile, the wireless industry in the United States is now shrinking um, as an well, industry. That, that's uh, where I wanted to go, Craig. Give us buy, hold, sell on these three stocks. I mean, forget about well, Sprint. I mean, You've got to sell on that. But give me a buy, hold, sell on Verizon, T, and T-Mobile. 
Well, let's start with T-Mobile and Sprint, because you can't think about those as as separate businesses, um, because the probability that they attempt a merger is so high. So what you're really betting on is whether the merger succeeds or not, that is, whether it gets approved by the Department of Justice. And and that's already, there's already a tremendous amount in both stocks for that merger. I happen to think it's much more aggressively priced into Sprint than T-Mobile, hence the, the different positions that we have on Sprint and T-Mobile. We've got a well, sell on Sprint, and, a, and T-Mobile looks to be about fairly valued for the odds. AT&T is struggling for different reasons. AT&T um, has made pretty aggressive moves away from wireless to move into the media business. Um, but the first move they did, which was to spend $60 billion on DirecTV, um, in retrospect, looks very problematic, right? Because DirecTV is, is shrinking now. Um, they probably paid twice what DirecTV would be worth today. Um, and as DirecTV starts to now contract, um, it, it, is, it is going to be a bigger and bigger um, drag on AT&T. Um, and so AT&T looks to us to be in a, in a much more difficult position. Verizon is, st- and we've, we've got a hold on AT&T, um, but I, 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 I worry quite a bit about AT&T's prospects. Mm-hmm. Um, Verizon is still the closest thing to a pure play in wireless. And um, while it, it, it looks to us to perhaps be a little bit undervalued and therefore probably the most attractive name in in wireless, but I'm not jumping mm-hmm. up and down and screaming and saying this is an incredibly well, cheap stock. That's um, but it's probably the best positioned uh, as a standalone yeah. player. Craig Moffat with us this half hour. We'll come back with uh, Mr. Moffat and talk about the rest of his space of Moffat Nathanson as we can. Uh, just interesting. I put out the chart yesterday of the moonshot of T-Mobile versus what the others two have done since Mr. Legere took over. It is a, a chart that speaks volumes. Michael McKee and Tom Keene in our studios in New York, David Gurry in Washington. And David, I would suggest to you that the 65 miles from Fort Collins, Colorado to Boulder is more than 65 miles. Very few people have made the cultural leap from <laughs> Colorado State University. My alma mater, the, by the way, David. <laughs> so say hello to the senator and ask him if, the, uh, yes. if, if he's been to the new stadium. There we go. Senator Cory Gardner here with me uh, in, in D.C. at our Bloomberg Next uh, event. I'll let you answer that question. Well, is this where I say go Rams? You, I think please, I can say yeah. go Rams go, right I, I like no, the guy. I was, right. actually, as best you can. I was one of the guys that took the Ram around to the football field before the oh. game during touchdowns, and uh, <laughs> so it was a, a fun opportunity. I have not, and I regret saying this, been to the new stadium. It is right across from the place that I lived during college, though, so we've got some pretty good parking uh, already. Very good. Uh, Corey Garney, let me ask you first of all, we're here to talk about uh, the jobs landscape, technology, and and jobs, and you've uh, advanced something called the Chance Act. Tell us a bit about that and sort of what that can do to uh, incentivize the creation of more jobs in the tech Absolutely. You know, the conversation that started with Boulder and Fort Collins, and if you look at Boulder and Fort Collins, I mean, these are two of the, the booming areas of our state, uh, in large part because of the incredible technology corridor that exists between, you know, uh, between Boulder, Longmont, Fort Collins. But what we see in Colorado is a challenge between matching the, the skills that we have. About 50% of the jobs in Colorado are so-called middle skills jobs. About 40% lack the skills to have those middle skills jobs. Only 40% have the skills to, to meet those middle skills jobs needs and so so 
what we've said is, hey, that's going to be in the tech sector too. So we've figured out a way to match sort of this skills need, the skills gaps with the Chance Act, which is about apprenticeships, which is about recognizing that not everybody's going to go through a four-year computer science program, nor should they at a university in Boulder or Fort Collins. But what we can do is make sure that the workforce needs are met uh, through apprenticeships, making sure that they're available to high schoolers, making sure they're available to, to community colleges, making sure they're available to people while they're going through a four-year degree program. So th this would match up public-private par partnerships with uh, businesses who need that uh, apprentice, that skill addressed to make sure that we have that pipeline in existence so that we can continue to see business growth. How acute a problem is this in Colorado? If I wander around Rhino today or I make that drive from Denver to Boulder uh, and just look at all of the development on that route, it is incredible. And you see so many tech companies there. Uh, is it a problem in Colorado? Do you foresee it being a problem? How much uh, opportunity is there right now in the tech sector versus how many unfilled jobs yeah, are there? You know, it's a great thing about Colorado is everybody wants to be in Colorado. A hundred and some thousand people are moving there every year. But, and so we're able to, to meet the, these demands. But it's tough, right? Because you've got to have competitive benefit packages, wages to make sure that they're, they're, they're able to compete with uh, the next door neighbor who's doing the same thing. But just look at cyber uh, alone. There are over 12,000 cyber openings in Colorado, cybersecurity openings uh, for business in Colorado alone. It's even higher if you go into other states like Virginia where there's like 18 or 20,000. So we, we've got to, if we're going to continue to attract the kind of quality companies that we are, we have to make sure that that pipeline exists. Right now, we're doing a good job. We're meeting that need, but we're going to have to make sure we continue that pipeline. Let's talk about the Amazon effect in all of this. You can't talk yeah. about tech without talking about the role that Amazon plays. And we saw such enthusiasm for this bidding process to become the site of the next Amazon uh, headquarters. And maybe Colorado was trying to convince folks that it's on the East Coast, though, though it is not. <laughs> what, what can we learn from that, from, from how readily, how eagerly, uh, cities across the country wanted to get into that competition. I, what Amazon said there were like 230-some right. cities that uh, that said, hey, locate your headquarters here. I, I think it shows that people know these are good-paying jobs, good benefits, skills jobs, and they kind of want to build their cities around the kind of culture that exists in these kinds of jobs. And that's uh, people who are savvy, educated, uh, skills-based, that they know is the new, you know, it's, it's passe to say it's the new economy, mm -hmm. but, I mean, this is really the future uh, that, that, that is, you know, we're not going back to some of the old style jobs this is where we're going to move forward to more and more jobs like these are going to be there from and Colorado has become a great software state and so a lot of the needs that Amazon has are going to be well at home in a state like Colorado. Do you have a hard time keeping people in Colorado? You've got folks like a young Michael McKee who wandered out of Fort Collins and found his way to <laughs> DC and then New York. Is it hard to get people to stay in Colorado after they go to college at Colorado State or Man, I think a lot of people stay in Colorado, and that's reflected in those numbers I just mentioned, people moving there, and it's uh, really on that Front Range corridor from Colorado Springs, Colorado, to Denver, up to, to Fort Collins and everywhere in between. Uh, where, where, where we have a struggle within the state, though, is making sure that our western slope and our eastern plains mm -hmm. see the same kinds of opportunities. So you do have a drain particularly on the eastern plains from these agri rural agricultural-based communities uh, to the more urban corridors uh, on the I-25 front range area, uh, and that's something we have to address. When you talk to a C-suite executive trying to convince him or her to move a company or move some part of the company to Colorado, what's the biggest hurdle that you have to uh, overcome? You can talk about the skiing, you can talk about all that you're able to do uh, in Colorado from a quality of life perspective, but what's the, the biggest issue that, that you have to get them to overcome? You know, it's so funny because if you look at like a, a company like Level 3 that decided years ago, decades ago, to headquarter itself in Colorado, they said, look, we want East Coast, West Coast education draws. 
but we want the lifestyle of Colorado, and we really believe that based on the quality of life factor, recreational opportunities, all that the mountains have to offer, all that Denver has to offer, that, that people from the East Coast and West Coast would come to it. And I think they proved themselves exactly right, and that's what we see. And so, uh, you know, the hurdles, maybe somebody says, well, look, Atlanta has an airport that has so many better connections than Denver. Come on, Denver's got the fifth busiest airport in the United States, adding global flights uh, each and every year. You can now fly direct uh, into uh, multiple cities in Germany. You've got uh, both airports in, in uh, London now you can fly into from Denver direct. You've got a direct to, to Narita and beyond. And so this is something that I think we've been able to address. Uh, you now got the train from the A train, the train to the plane uh, from uh, from DIA to downtown, 37 minutes, six stops you can get there. Uh, you've got world-class resorts. Uh, it's a great foodie town now. Uh, so really, I, I think the things that people may have thought about uh, Colorado in the past have been blown away now. Got a couple minutes left before I have to go talk to you on stage. So let me ask you just about the general news of the day here, looking at tax reform still. Uh, I imagine you fielded a few questions from constituents wondering how and why the process is playing out in the way that it is. Uh, there's a narrow time frame here. Uh, Mick Mulvaney going on television on Sunday saying he's optimistic that with 10 or 12 days of synced schedules between the House and the Senate, you can get tax reform done this year. Are you of the belief that it will happen, that by 2018 we're going to see a new piece of legislation passed, signed, by January 1st. Absolutely, I'm of the belief that we can, and I, I'd like to see this done sooner rather than later. If you go back to President Obama's 2011 State of the Union address, he talked about how we have the highest corporate tax rate in the world. Uh, that needs to change. How If you have lawyers and accountants, uh, you can get around a very complicated system, but if you're uh, like everybody else, the vast majority of American people, you don't have that ability, so you're kind of stuck uh, paying a, a rigged system. And so I think that we can get our job done, uh, do what the American people sent us here to do, do it uh, in a way that has by bipartisan support, because I do believe this will be bipartisan, uh, and uh, make sure that we put more money in the pockets of American families and businesses uh, to grow our economy. Not everybody, has, Colorado, Fort Collins, Colorado, for instance, 1.9% unemployment. Not every, not every other place in the country is able to benefit like that. We can do better for everyone. Last question here is, uh, are, you, are you finding yourself checking Twitter more? We were talking earlier in the show about uh, what the president tweeted about changes to 401k tax policy. Uh, and that scuttled or changed the conversation on, on Capitol Hill. How much is, is what the president says and does or tweets affecting your job on, on Capitol Hill? Look, I, I, I view my job as my job in the Senate. I work for the people of Colorado, and that's what I focus on. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to be glued to Twitter just to find out what somebody else says. Uh, but what I want to make sure that I'm doing is listening to those voices from Colorado uh, that come at us each and every day and that uh, we can help represent here. Let me try that another way. Uh, who's, who's in the lead when it comes to tax reform or the budget? What role should the White House be playing? What role would you like to see the president playing? You know, I think as the, a cheerleader right, or I as a that, Yeah, I see what you mean. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I, I think what, what, what the White House can play, what I think any White House should play, is a role of sort of a, um, a convener, so to speak. Uh, that role of, hey, we've got disparate elements within the Republican Party. You've got disparate ideas between the, the Democrats and the Republicans. Let's come together, find a package that represents the best of, of everybody. Uh, because, like I said, President Obama talked about this. Chuck Schumer has talked about this. All right, let's do this. Let's do it in a way that can gain that broad bipartisan support. So I, th I think that's the real role that a White House can play. Um, and I think uh, you've seen successes uh, from this White House in that front. Uh, you've seen failures from this White House on that front, just like you have with any other administration. All right. I'm going to toss back to our conveners uh, in New York, Tom Keen, Michael McKee, uh, Senator Garner. Thank you very much for the time today. Appreciate it. Now, go, go Rams. Go Rams. <laughs> go Rams. Thank you. Go Rams. That was fantastic. For the we Senator, should get together and talk about the, the things we, the, our misdeeds yeah, um, for college. Yeah, that would be tr true. For the Senator and for Michael McKee, you can't do better than the Danoffs, Will Danoff and Taffy Danoffs. Wonderful song that John Denver made famous.
We are thrilled to bring you the man that I hate the most. <laughs> it is just unreal an in the Keene household the importance of Stephen Swartz of Hearst because it comes in and it it destroys the budget. It's known as Harper's Bazaar, which is one part of the Swartz empire as well. You started at page one at the Wall Street Journal he still has ink under years his ago, like no, a real like journalist. A real journalist. A real journalist dealing with the modern age of journalism and all of the Hearst heritage in, in that. Do you dive into Harper's Bazaar every month? I, I, I love Harper's Bazaar. Uh, it's one of... Uh, roughly 300 magazines that we have. And uh, look, magazines uh, have been around a long time and they're going to be around a lot longer. Is luxury going to stay with print? I mean, that's a major debate. Everybody else says it. You know the turmoil at Time Magazine and all that. And yet Harper seems to boom along with the other luxury magazines. You know, I think luxury is 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 a good place to be. It's been a little soft over the yeah, last sure, but year. Come on. But uh, yes, over the long haul, we feel very good about our position in fashion and the luxury sector in general. Yeah, Mike, you, what you can do there is you get a whole page <laughs> of things in blue or a whole page of things in red. <laughs> and Thomas uh, tears the pages out to know what yes, to, I do. to buy. Uh, here's my question. I'm, I'm, you own a bajillion different media businesses, uh, but they all come down to one thing is you got to have eyeballs on them. They got to read the magazines or watch the TV networks or listen to the you know, radio programs, whatever you produce how do you sell and realize how you're doing these days in a world where and i'm not a millennial but i find myself doing this i read magazines i watch tv programs but i don't buy the magazine or turn on the tv you know everything is driven by social media now you see an article uh that is linked to something you know it used to be you could say i'm doing great because i sold this many magazines or this many eyeballs were on the tv program at 8 30 how do you do that these days and know that you're going to be successful I think you're right that uh, it's a more competitive environment out there in consumer media. There's there's far more uh, quality media than people have time to watch. There are far more places to put advertising uh, than there is advertising. Uh, uh, so I think what you have to do uh, if you're a, if you're a brand like a magazine brand is you've gotta you gotta go everywhere that the consumer is. So take our brand Cosmopolitan, fabulous magazine brand, but it is a huge hit on Snapchat. Huge hit on on Facebook, and uh, you know that's the kind of thing that you've got to do going forward. You've got to find the audiences, and you've got to find new pockets of growth. Now, another thing that we've done at Hearst over the years is build up a whole other line of business, which is our uh, business data operations and our business software operations. Largest business in that area is our Fitch Group, the Fitch bond rating business and other Fitch data businesses. So we have uh, healthcare data businesses, healthcare software businesses, a fabulous aviation software business called Camp. And so these business data and software businesses that, that have been in our portfolio at least to some degree for many years, are now approaching a third of our profits and growing much faster than the consumer media stuff, which yeah. gives us time to reposition some of these consumer media brands. To be clear for our listeners, we hope you can stay with us another sure. block given your schedule, but to be clear here, you're a private company, right? 
Yes. Are you advantaged by being private and not being in the quarter-to-quarter crucible of your good competitors? I think we're very advantaged by being profit. Take, for example, our newspaper group. It was getting hit harder, uh, as hard as, as, as other newspaper groups. You go back to 2007, 8, and 9. Uh, there would be a lot of pressure if we were public to, to spin off or sell the newspaper group. But we turned that group around, and this will be the sixth straight year of profit growth at mm-hmm. Hearst Newspapers. We have no debt against Hearst Newspapers. So they are a great contribution to cash, but but uh, outside investors would have tried to pressure us to sell that group. You work for, like, some would say a real journalist. William Randolph Hearst III was at the San Francisco Examiner a million years ago. I mean, that name is iconic to so many of our listeners. How active is uh, William Randolph Hearst III in your day-to-day operations? Well, is he well, Will, out for Will, Will, Will is our chairman. He is an incredibly smart man. He was a partner at Kleiner uh, Perkins, so yeah. he understands I mean, this guy's the in digital the stuff. Uh, he was our publisher at the San Francisco Examiner. And, uh, and, and, and of course, you know, uh, the company is still, I think, uh, uh, runs on the, on the, the ethos of, of, of William Randolph Hearst. I mean, he, he was always mm. pushing for new things, always innovating. And, and, mm. uh, and then my, my predecessor, Frank Bennett, who ran the company for 28 years, picked up the mantle, mantle of William Randolph Hearst, pushed us into cable, pushed us into business data. So the, the philosophy right. of our company is you got to keep moving. Well, that's right where I want to go. You, you could stay with us, right? Right now, you don't have to go off and, you know, solve Hearstian problems. There, it's diverse. We have a to bunch say of least, magazines Michael. in our waiting room. You can yeah. read do you, you don't do Hockey <laughs> Illustrated, do you? I mean, you know, a, can you imagine doctors' offices with a bunch of iPhones sitting around? <laughs> no, I can't. You got to have the magazines. Well, no, we can come back and talk about that. The resurrection of print books. We've been seeing that as a theme uh, this year. Stephen Schwartz with us, of course, with Hearst. We were talking earlier about the chairman William Randolph Hearst, uh, the third. I want to go back to 1924. Uh, where Hearst bought the Albany Times Union. I was a paper boy for the Rochester <laughs> Times Union. To give you an idea, Congresswoman Louise Slaughter still owes me $4.23 on her uh, Times Union subscription. Well, you know, years. we still own the yeah. Albany Times Union. It's yeah. a great paper. Uh, George Hearst III is our publisher there, and he does a fabulous job. Wonderful, wonderful. And and then the idea in in Boston, Good Morning Boston, 106.1 FM, is a juggernaut in true innovator WCVB. Can, Channel 5, lo- can local survive? Oh, can absolutely. local TV and can local Times Union kind of papers, can they survive and can you make money? This is an important social question for the nation. Absolutely. I would argue that local right now has certain advantages over national. When you have a national publication or national show, a TV show, uh, you're, you're competing head to head with Google and Facebook, and they are doing a fabulous job of taking a lot of money out of the market that uh, might be available for other uh, for other media. Uh, locally, if you're the best, and uh, we're the best in Albany with the Times Union, we're the best in Boston with Channel Five. Uh, you can you can take your fair share of the local market, and our local businesses are thriving. What's your, what's your metric? How do you decide? When you say uh, if you're the best in the local market, how do you decide what business is worth being in these days? Which property is worth owning? Well, we we don't have a history of getting out of things. I mean, we've we've been in the newspaper business forever, the magazine business almost forever, and uh, a local television. You know, William Randolph Hearst himself bought our first television station in Baltimore before he died in 1951. Uh, you know, we don't we don't get out of these businesses. Uh, we think we uh, we run our business as well. 
we have no debt against them, and uh, you know we're we're having a we're having a fine well, year in in all all of the traditional uh, media businesses. Our colleague David Gura is not here, and he has. I think a lifetime subscription to Rodale's Organic Life, where he cooks <laughs> kale. He has kale like in every manner that he can. And is it right that you have the mags? I don't get Men's Health. Got that right. <laughs> Prevention. I don't get We're that. Not going there. I yeah. certainly don't get Ro- Rodale's Organic Life. Do you do Cigar World by any chance? We do not. Damn. Do not. Okay, <laughs> but you're going into organic and kale and all that well, we, with Rodale. We've, Tell we've, us about we've that. We've agreed to. Uh, to acquire uh, the uh, the fabulous assets of the, the Rodale family. Uh, it had did a fabulous job uh, creating a unique voice uh, in health and wellness. And uh, uh, we think it's a great category. It will strengthen uh, our already strong magazine division. And look, the magazine business is a much tougher business today uh, than it was 10 years or so ago. Uh, uh, but uh, we're the leader there. And we think this combination of Hearst and Rodale uh, yeah. makes us even stronger. Here's the article from men's health. Uh, Michael McKee, you'll love this. How this guy lost 122 pounds without ever hitting the gym. Steve Swartz ordered that article to be done. Tom, just the martini's got to go. <laughs> <laughs> you could do the same thing. Uh, here's a question I have that, that sort of flows out of all this. When you send your sales guys out, are you uh, telling them, you know, what, what do they tell the clients? If you look across our platforms, we have all these eyeballs. Can you sell an individual property anymore? Or given the, the, the mix of the way people watch and see things, um, I mean, obviously the Times Union is going to get the local Albany department store. But other than that, um, what, what, how do you sell these days? Uh, you know, certain advertisers just want a particular property. But in general, consumer franchises like ours are selling a, a mix of services, uh, our own web and mobile sites, our presence on platforms like Facebook mm-hmm. and, uh, and Snapchat. Uh, we will uh, uh, create uh, advertising uh, for content for advertisers. Uh, say at our magazine division, based on our knowledge of fashion and beauty, you're you're delivering today to right. the advertiser a, a mix of services. Jeff Bezos, friend or enemy? What he's done at the Post is extraordinary. How do you handle a guy like Jeff Bezos? Well, I think Jeff Bezos is is probably the the best chief executive in the in the country, and uh, he has he's made all of our lives uh, uh, better with his innovations. I think the Washington Post is doing a great job today, and that's to their credit and to his credit. But look, any any business, and we have a number of phenomenal businesses in this country that get quite powerful, quite dominant, and it is a it is a question for policymakers to always look at just to make sure. So you want that Washington to go after Facebook at, and Amazon? Uh, I gotta make some news absolutely, here. Help me. Absolutely not. I, I think they're they're excellent partners of ours, but I'm just saying in our economy, we always have to watch that businesses don't become too big mm-hmm. and, and powerful and, and squeeze out innovation and entrepreneurship. So it's just something to be watched and occasionally a corrective measure uh, has to be done. But these are all great businesses and I, I'm not proposing anything. Very, very quick question here. Uh, Bloomberg TV is obviously the best network out there, but um, second best has got to be 
Awesomeness TV. You have awesome. What is Awesomeness TV? Awesomeness TV is a is is a great young business that 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 uh, focuses mainly on the the young uh, teenage uh, uh, girl market. It it does movies. It does it does television. It does streaming videos. It does YouTube, yeah. and uh, it's okay. one of a, a number of, of of bets that we've made on the future of streaming video. Um, that is your future. It is. Yeah, I'll give you my future. I'm begging. No Gucci in the next Harper's Bazaar. Steve Swartz, thank you so much for the first. Wonderful to have him here on the future of media. Uh, David Gura, uh, Governor McAuliffe didn't think he would have a weekend like he had with Charlottesville. It was a number of weeks ago when we spoke to him in the heat of uh, that tragedy, and uh, it is time for a good conversation. Please, David Gura, bring us the governor of Virginia. Yeah, Governor Terry McCall, the uh, 72nd governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, former chairman of the Democratic National Committee, with me here uh, at a Bloomberg government event here uh, in Washington, D.C. Let's start there. I imagine you've been there and back many times, and, and I wonder, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, not full enough to say how's the healing going there, but what have we learned from that tragedy, and, and, and how have you uh, continued to pay attention to, to what's been going on in Albemarle County? Well, it's interesting. As soon as the event was over, most of the people left. They were from out of state. As I said that day, go home. You're not wanted. You're not patriots. You're a bunch of cowards. And uh, they did leave the state. And they haven't been back, which is good. So, you know, Charlottesville has very quickly come back together. It's a great, resilient community. And people realize that these folks came in from out of state to cause harm in our beautiful Commonwealth. So, you know, everybody came together very quickly. and We've moved on. I've done a... um, statewide commission now on diversity how do we handle these issues because you know these folks left but you know i'm very clear we still have issues ourselves in virginia we have had a sordid history ourselves as you know as it relates to many of these racial issues um so i have a you know commission dealing with that i've also put together a commission uh to deal with the permitting process as you know i was very angry uh charlottesville had requested that that be moved from emancipation park up to mcintyre park Mm -hmm. You know, the key to this, David, is to keep the two sides separated. That's the most important thing that you can do. We saw that in Boston. So I talked to Charlie Baker the next day, Sunday. He called me. Governor of Massachusetts said, what's the best thing advice? I said, get a permit, keep them separated. And they were able to do that. Unfortunately, you know, the ACLU sued Charlottesville. And the judge sided with them, and they kept it at this Emancipation Park, which is a very small area, and they put thousands of people in the same little park, which was a boiling point. And then when they finally moved them out, you had a 21-year-old kid, terrorist, mechanize his car and kill, you know, Heather Heyer. So, you know, I think the permitting process, you know, if we can stop this idea, and I'm going to come out with some recommendations. Uh, the commission's going to report back to me in the next two weeks, and uh, we'll go for it. Listen, our job, just keep people safe. Mm-hmm. You can come in, David. I may not like what you have to say, but you got every right to say it. You do not have a right to come in and hurt people or property. You don't. And that's my job as governor to make sure that we can keep people safe. And we've got to work better with the judiciary and others to make sure that when we have recommendations that came to me from the FBI and DHS that we conveyed to the city of Charlottesville, that they actually take those recommendations and they do something with it. You talk an awful lot about uh, the new Virginia, and a huge component part of that is trade, opening up the state to trade, getting more trade going on, getting companies from overseas to come here to uh, Virginia. How do you go about doing that? What have you learned about what uh, what's the most effective way to get companies to come to Virginia? Well, I talk about the new Virginia economy every day because when I got elected governor, I'm going to focus on one thing, jobs 
And when I talk about jobs, I talk about high-quality, high-paying jobs and diversifying the economy. So not all tech. Not all tech. Yeah. No, goodness gracious, no. It's everything. And because we've been hit hard by sequestration. Virginia is the number one recipient of Department of Defense dollars. Of all 50 states, we get the most, about $55 billion. But when sequestration, we really got hurt before I came into office. And I was dealing with the remnants of that. So I said, we got to grow. We got to diversify. Today, four years later, David, we are now the number one state in America for cybersecurity companies. You know, over 650 cyber companies today. We have more data centers. 70% of the world's internet traffic now goes through Virginia. We are leading on the unmanned aerial systems. I just... Uh, did a uh, new unveiled a new runway for drones in in Virginia, the first in America. I'm the first governor to go up in a drone. I, I went this. up eight miles over the ocean, <laughs> me and a robot and a little pad, and I told it to take off, and it did, and it landed. So, but you know, so we've got my now. This is fascinating, David. I just announced when I became governor, unemployment was five four. I just announced the other day three point seven. We're the second lowest of any major state in America. Tennessee is one. Virginia is now number two. After what we had gone through on sequestration and government shutdowns, for Virginia to be back in second place really is extraordinary. And it's a testament to our educators, to everybody. This is a big collective effort. So the state's doing great. People are happy. Uh, We've created about 215,000 new jobs. I have brought back 18.6 billion of new capital since I've been in office, which I should tell you, is $6 billion more than any governor in the history of the Commonwealth of Virginia. That is the new Virginia economy. Boom, move to Virginia, 325 wineries. It all sounds so good. Should we move to Virginia? <laughs> Virginia is for lovers. Why would you got anyone want to live anywhere right. else? Uh, Boom Terry, economy, Terry, great education. You know, Terry, Terry McAuliffe with us with the enthusiasm on his great uh, state. Governor McAuliffe, you are more than qualified to answer the question. Lila emails in and says, why can't the Democrats win an election? I mean, this is an issue, Terry, and the and you are in the crosshairs of this with a party. Do you do yep. you have to shift from the elite progressives up north and on the west coast to real Democrats like you and the folks of Wisconsin and Michigan? Yeah, it's a good and listen, what I say constantly, now there's nothing that I just said, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, you're gonna actually argue with. The guy's creating a lot of high-paying jobs. You know, we've got a balanced budget. I just had a, ba- a surplus. We've built a new economy. I don't care what political party you're in, and I think the Democrats have got to lean in on the economic issues. I, I, I am so – I mean, people run for me do, when they see me coming down the street. I talk jobs can they do that, all day long. Can they do that now, or can they do it after the midterm elections? Can they wait They need to do it until- every day. What, what, do poli- what do people want from their politicians? They want a high-paying job for themselves and their children. They want a great education system. They want roads that work so you don't spend two hours going to see your kids play a ball game in the afternoon. And they want to stay healthy. That's it. We need to stay in that square box. And if you deliver, like in Virginia today, I'm popular. Thank goodness. Everybody, <laughs> like, even Republicans say, you know, I may not agree always with the guy's social agenda, but he creates jobs. And that's what they want from us. But I also make the point on the progressive, I'm most pro-business, but I'm also the most progressive in the sense that you can't bring these jobs in mm-hmm. unless you treat people with dignity no. and respect. I have vetoed no. 120 bills more than any governor yeah. in Virginia history 
discriminate against yeah. women, LGBT, or hurt the environment, I'm going to veto it, and David, I did. We are open and welcoming to everyone. Say goodbye Tom. to the governor. We have to end we the show. I'm sorry. just get warmed up. <laughs> I hadn't got my energy going Governor yet. Terry McAuliffe, thank you very much for taking the time again. Uh, talking to him here at a Bloomberg Governor yeah. event here in Washington, D.C., Tom. Fired Tom. up. Uh, fired up. Yeah, fired up. Ready to go. Let's go. Get it. Move to Virginia. Virginia's for lovers. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.